Our partner for this episode is Brad Lancaster. Brad Lancaster's award-winning Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond will show you how to get the most out of water and more in the landscape. Now in a new, color, second edition, his book series are the go-to guides for conceptualizing, designing, and implementing water harvesting systems for your home, landscape, and community. Their grounding in dynamically integrated strategies will teach you new ways of seeing and maximizing your site's potential by harvesting and enhancing free on-site resources from water to sun, wind, shade, soil, fertility, and beyond. Highly illustrated and full of case studies and stories of people successfully welcoming rain and more into their lives and landscapes, these books invite, inspire, and guide you to do the same. More info at harvestingrainwater.com. Though I partner with great folks like Brad, whose work I believe represents some of the best the community has to offer, listeners like you are who have kept the show going episode after episode, with more than 550 in the archives over the last nine years. To say it simply, I couldn't keep doing this without you. So I'm asking you to donate to the show this fall in order to bring another year full of episodes that dig deep into the basics of design and implementation, while also pushing the edges of what it means to practice permaculture. With your donation, I'll be able to move the podcast to a new hosting service where interviews like today's with David Holmgren can remain accessible and available to anyone with an internet connection for years to come. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. Become an ongoing member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Or send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you're not in a place to give a monetary contribution at this time, please spread the word on social media or leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, recorded by co-host David Bilbrey, David Holmgren returns for the second of the two-part conversation about his latest book, Retro Suburbia. This book and the discussion today look at what brought David Holmgren to this present moment. Through David Bilbrey's questions that take a look at the more personal side of David Holmgren's life, we get a picture of the past and ongoing influences that guided the development of permaculture from those early days in the 1970s through to how this work continues to grow in the current day. Enjoy this conversation between David and David, and I'll join you again afterward. First question along this vein would be, uh, when have you felt deeply engaged or purposeful in the last year or so? The context, what were you doing? Why was it purposeful? Well, I think one of the most interesting things for me is been taking my Aussie Street story, which is a sort of a permaculture soap opera of retrofitting suburbia that I've been telling for some years as a story. But in the local promotion of retro suburbia of course we've been doing uh, a lot of events and those have been actually partnering with local councils through their sustainability programs to take this challenging but uh, empowering story of the history and future of suburbia through this little story of four houses in a typical Australian suburb and I've been doing that repeatedly, essentially the same presentation. And I suppose as a public speaker, 
many years ago, especially when I was young, I felt it was sort of, well, a bit boring to do the same presentation over even twice and that there was a, some degree of intellectual dishonesty with repeating things, that somehow everything should be fresh and unique each time. And I've found this moving into this space of being better and better at telling a story and putting more energy and emotion into that story has been an incredibly rewarding process and seeing people connect to the story as, oh, this is our real shared history and we can make our own shared future through this process has been quite different to what I expected of the maybe the the draining exhausting effect of, of doing something over and over again so is there any additional sort of aha moments you've had in the process of doing that or even challenges that have happened in that context one of the challenges has been around some degree of pushback or caution about whether some of the ideas i'm proposing sort of pushing women back into the, you know, the woman's places at home. And as uh, Meg Ullman, our, our local um, household economy activist, says the home is the um, place for women, it's also the place for men. <laughs> but, you know, that all of these ideas about what is politically correct in the sort of liberal, left, progressive world that, I certainly come from and a lot of other people involved in concern about society's pathway come from that that a lot of these ideas that we're promoting look to some people like they're part of some social conservative return to the past. And the fact that my Aussie Street story and even the whole book of Retro Suburbia is celebrating some of the lineage we inherit from the recent past is challenging to people. And in the Australian context, the term Aussie is often associated with a sort of a, an intolerant redneck, if not a racist xenophobe. <laughs> uh, and so it's been interesting to sort of navigate that space and reclaiming a lot of these things and at the same time making a connection across that social divide that may not be as strong in Australia as it is in the United States or we sense it is in the United States between these different cultural worlds to recognise that you don't actually need to even believe in climate change for example to see a lot of sense in Aussie Street and uh, the retro suburbia agenda a large sense. So it was interesting that colleague Peter Harper from the Centre of Alternative Technology contacted me after the Brexit vote and said to me, I think we need something like your Aussie Street story as an adapter plug across this divide in our communities, places that we can find some commonality so I think that's been an interesting one that there's been, you know, elements of 
of pushback, but also elements of connection across to people who might come from a perspective of uh, libertarian autonomy and wanting to be freer to, you know, create their own world rather than be told by the government or society how they should live. So that's been a, a really interesting and ongoing process, I think. Thank you for sharing. Um, is, is there another um, scenario or situation where you felt deeply engaged here recently? Ah, well, I think perhaps a, a personal one that shifting context a little, we live on the edge of a, a small village in a, one of the most fire vulnerable regions in the world and bushfire resilient design has been a, a central theme in my work from the early days of permaculture and we've always had a stay and defend policy at Meliodora since the beginning 35 years ago and so that is now against the advice of the uh, standard government information and we recently just in February had the first very serious fire on our northern front of the town within a few hundred metres on public land that we've been involved in informally managing for the last 30 years. So that experience of preparing for that fire and the crossover and connection into the formal professional firefighting services and the police and the evacuation processes and actually staying and defending not just our immediate property but how we are going to deal with that threat coming through the public land that we've been managing was incredibly empowering. Uh, a lot of people said it must have been frightening. I certainly didn't experience it as frightening and in a lot of ways of course we were very lucky I've written about this on our website, a reflection about the, the experience, but I certainly found that an empowering response to what most people would see as a, a very negative thing. Empowering in the event, it's easy to look back and say, oh yes, it all went well, but as it was happening, it felt like, yes, this is what we have been preparing for all these years. So that, I think, was, um, yeah, an, an interesting and important experience for us. Could you talk about maybe some people, maybe two or three people who have motivated or inspired you in some way, who they are and, and kind of what, they, what they've, how they've helped formed who you are and what you've ended up doing with your life? Uh, yeah, well, of course, the strongest influences for most of us tend to be earlier on in life, obviously, the way we grew up in our families. Uh, my parents, I think, were enabled me to stand on their shoulders and do things that I didn't have to do. A lot of what my generation of uh, baby boomers who did struggle against the, the norms of society, I didn't need to do that because my parents had done that a generation before. So that was a huge influence on my life and my mother in partnering with her in building a, a self-sufficiency property 
in the early days of permaculture was also shaped and set up my work as a, a permaculture design consultant in many ways. And so I would have to say um, of my parents, since my father died when I was 18, although his influence is increasingly strong in my life in more recent years, my mother had a, a sort of a huge influence in shaping my worldview and ongoing practice. Bill Mollison I've, I've written about, and that was an incredibly in, important relationship. And it was interesting looking back and just even reflecting on the fact that he came into my life at the time my father was dying of cancer. And I never even considered there was a connection between those things at, at the time. But obviously, our relationship was that of student mentor, but to some extent, a father figure and like most father figures that didn't easily translate into collegiate equals but I had a lot of other mentors the most important I consider my second mentor in permaculture was Hakai Tane in New Zealand who is quite a complex character in some ways people would perhaps see him as uh, some similarities to Mollison but a radical holistic thinker, a land use planner and uh, beekeeper and many other things. The other person who was a huge influence on my life at a distance was really in some ways foundational to the permaculture concept was Howard Odom, the systems ecologist from Florida who developed energy accounting. And I dedicated uh, principles and pathways to his uh, memory, him dying uh, uh, just a year before that book was published. So I think his ideas and conceptual systems have really been a, a foundation for permaculture ideas that I've come back to over the years. So those sort of early influences and ongoing influences in my work of come back and been sort of like been a wellspring that I've gone back to at various stages and discovered new aspects in those relationships, even if those relationships were for a very short time. Like my working relationship with Mollison was a and living with him was a very intense relationship that was basically two years and yet that obviously did uh, shape really my, the, the rest of my life in terms of the creation and spread of, uh, of permaculture ideas. The last person I'd mention, and this may sound very trite and uh, sort of typical of especially males of intellectual orientation saying their partner, but I've got as far as I have down the permaculture pathway in terms of the lived experience because of having a, a partner who's not just aligned with those values but a radical articulator of those in some ways more radical than me. So Sue Dennett, you know, my partner in life and in fact the publisher of Retro Suburbia, she's not 
a writer at all, but a lot of what's written in retro suburbia is really channeling her views and, and ways of doing things, especially the whole uh, behavioural field chapters. So uh, it's interesting to sort of bracket three strong dominant males that I just mentioned off the top of the head, um, uh, Mollison, uh, Hakai Tane, and from what I know of him from a distance, Howard Odom, and bracket those between two uh, very strong, powerful women. <laughs> well, um, so this, this next question is going to be kind of funny because I think some people um, like to experience their life through your eyes, but if you could literally be another person and experience their life from the inside for a period of time, who would you be and why? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something I've um, considered. I've, I've certainly thought about being alive at other times, but I think to imagine the world through an Indigenous person connected to place and culture, deeply embedded in their world, the opposite of the normalised alienation of the modern world is something that to be able to understand what that might be like, because it is part of, I suppose, that search for home that in, in a more sort of deep general sense of being an individual in alienated from environment and, and culture that to some extent all modern people are and not to romanticize what it meant to be connected and whole connected to the ancestors connected to the future in in that sense uh, because there's also huge constrictions, restraints that maybe someone of my ilk would find suffocating. But to be able to experience that harmony of connection and belonging is not something I sort of yearn for in a sort of a, a desperate, passionate way, but it would certainly give a much deeper understanding of what it really means to be human and to be part of a culture that has any chance of persisting. That's the patterns that we know to some degree we've got to recreate. So what would that feel like? Because it's almost impossible to find that experience in the modern world, even though people are searching for it everywhere is impacted, nowhere is anything more than a, in a process of recovery and retention of some of those elements. And I respect, you know, people who, through Indigenous cultural connection, maintaining and renewing those things, but we can also see at a larger sense that the effects of the modern world and the tapping of thousands of millions of years of stored sunlight in fossil fuels has sort of broken most of those connections that all of our ancestors, you know, really took for granted. So to be in those shoes, I suppose, 
Yeah, the the reconnection of what has been severed by this massive acceleration of of the burning of fossil fuel resources in such a short period of time. I really, yeah, that's really insightful. I like, I like that. Um, and and also, you know, this is this is our own imaginary experiment of of thoughts and questions. So you can you can go and be this indigenous person and experience that in the context of all that you know in the modern world. And and that, and so we can take those ideas, feel what it would be like to tap into the wisdom they had, but also still retain the wisdom we have of living in the 21st century. And that's one of the unique things about where we are is we have the, we're the first sort of generation or generations that actually can see the context of human history, the variety of civilizations, cultures, economic systems, anthropologies. Most people in the world history didn't have much of a view outside of their own village or the next village over, right? And, until the modern era, we can see all of these different cultures and thought systems and philosophies and religions and see what the patterns are. Look at the pattern language of thriving in all of those different contexts. And then together as individuals and communities and as a global, you know, society create this world that we all can thrive in and, you know, to use the words of Charles Eisenstein, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Like we have the access to these resources, partly through the internet and, and the freedom of information that comes with mediums like this, you know, podcasting that gives us access to ideas that no one's had before. Um, and so it's an incredibly rich time to be able to tap into that and have that really broad whole systems perspective on life and humanity right so yeah, well, i think it's i think it's the both the the best times to be alive uh you know the and the most challenging in terms of you know the the ethical burdens and the potential of being on the mountaintop and choosing to go around that rock you know may determine that we end up down in some other valley or catchment compared with if we go around this other rock and that in that condition of doing that, we know that we could face cliffs and dead-end falls and there's storm coming that's uh, making it dangerous to be on the mountaintop. So that metaphor of getting down into the valley of reconnection to place and yet the amazing view and taking in of everything that the mountaintop position gives us. Of course, tragically, most people are overwhelmed by even the thought of that view from the mountaintop. And, uh, you know, we don't make use of it and we treat what fossil fuels has allowed us to do as just another humdrum, you know, experience. So in my teaching, I've often taught that fossil fuels and, and what they've allowed us to do, we should cherish that, or if not cherish it, or recognise the power that that's given us as a lived experience rather than treating it as taking it for granted. And that shifts our appreciation greatly and it sort of understands this, we then have the understanding of the significance of what we are doing, even if we just treat it as nothing of any significance. 
So I think that informs a, a different way to saying moving from the modernist celebration of human power and technology to an environmentalist sort of view of all of these things are bad to recognising that power that's been largely used for dysfunctional or insignificant things and that if we can grasp those opportunities to say, well, we have this power and responsibility now to do something significant while accepting that actually most of the culture around us is going to go into the dustbin of human history. So there's this process of, of tragic loss. And while I agree with Charles Eisenstein and other sort of positive, optimist views about those potentials, I think history teaches us that humanity will probably have to walk through the valley of death to come out you know, the other side into a more positive space. And maybe in speaking to you, um, you know, at Easter, we do have in our cultural and religious traditions a whole lot of you know, metaphors and stories for these uh, processes. Cycle, uh, right. <laughs> rather than that we're just going to simply having cruised on the privilege of fossil fuel, we're going to step neatly across into some sustainable, just world without any sort of uh, ructions, let alone, you know, pain and suffering. I think that's sort of less likely. So, you know, I agree with a lot of the people talking about deep adaption to climate chaos, that there's a process of, of giving up in the sense of accepting certain things that we no longer have the power to stop. And that's enormously sort of contentious and, um, you know, is seen by some people as giving up. Whereas for those of us in that space, it's actually empowers what is important to do, you know, in this life now. In the same way that people going through health crises, personal crises, often become sort of galvanised through that process to to live each day as if it is really, you know, the most important thing. So we have plenty of models at, at the simple level and the larger societal level to say that crossover between, you know, pain and suffering and grief and loss and positive transformation is a, a complex one. And, yeah, just coming back to that idea that permaculture has always been informed by a pretty dark view of the state of the world, but recognising possibilities and potential and that we can and need to live in a way that's positive and reinforces those values, even if only for our own psychological survival and health, because otherwise we're just a burden to someone else who has to look after us. So, so two two major things come up as you as you talked about that, and one is the process, and I don't know even a, a methodology for grief and mourning. Like I had I had a conversation with Warren Brush recently, and and we talked about this in some little bit more depth. But you know, as you get the paradigm shift of of permaculture and whole systems thinking, and you see this more dynamic, natural, amazing way of like 
designing and living at the same time or, or shortly thereafter, you start to have this, I personally anyway, started to have this sort of grief for what was lost or what I didn't have all those years that I should have. Like, I guess to make it a little bit simpler, you know, one of the things for me when I got introduced to permaculture was it just resonated so deeply with me, even though I never heard of it because it answered a lot of the questions that I'd had under the surface that were even subconscious, maybe living through, I was a teenager in the eighties. So, you know, maybe one of the most superficial decades, there was some great art and music and great things that happened, but there was a lot of superficial stuff as well. So, you know, our modern cultures lost a lot of rites of passage and how teaching and mentoring and fathering or mothering, I guess, and how you walk through grief and mourning of what's lost, but also the second thing of what you, as you were talking, I was thinking about was resilience. So one of the things that also resonated with me deeply about permaculture was resilience. So creating these resilient systems, the food forest is exponentially more resilient than a monocrop of corn or soy or whatever. So the question, I guess, I'm gonna get to a question here in a second, is (laughs) how do you create or live into resilience of our emotional and social sort of interactions. You know, you're talking about the world is probably going to get challenging, more challenging before it gets into the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. So how do we prepare ourselves or create relationships that are going to give us that resilience to <laughs> to live through these the darker times and come out on the other end in a way that's going to be meaningful and and help us to actually survive to create that world well one of the ironies of course is when systems become very successful they can buffer themselves very successful and powerful they can change the external environment around them to buffer themselves against stress and shocks and that makes everything more comfortable but it actually means that the lack of small stresses and shocks reduces the resilience of the system to big shocks that can't be buffered by the uh, environmental membranes, technological filters or whatever. So what does that mean? I mean, if you look at a child raised in a sterile environment, they actually become a a challenged immune system because the immune system has not been challenged, uh, you know, by uh, small exposures we know that creating the perfectly clean environment actually creates an open space like a plowed field for the most toxic pathogenic bacteria so the whole overturning of of that paradigm to one where the space needs to be filled by a complex ecology which does still transmit stresses to the body of microbes or or whatever but that actually makes the system stronger we can see at a societal level in relation to what i was talking about with bushfire that we have some of the best uh, professional and volunteer fighting services in the world with amazing technological support but that means no one actually experiences dealing with fire because the authorities put them all out except the catastrophic ones that overwhelm those systems. So if, if we look at that aspect, a lot of the lack of resilience in modern systems is we've just become too good 
too successful for our own good. Now, how you redesign to get that resilience, it's like letting a kid play with a pocket knife like we did with our son at two years of age because he wanted to use my pocket knife. And I decided to, well, leave it a bit blunt. And there's one rule, if you're using it, you've got to sit down and do something with it. You can't run around with it. So what my thinking was, <laughs> well, you don't a good rule. <laughs> fall over and impale themselves on the knife. But if they're going to cut themselves, well, that's part of the, the deal. That's, that's part of the, the process. So that acceptance of small shocks is definitely one of the things that um, builds resilience. We can look at that in another way financially. People who are self-employed, I found over the years as clients, doing the back to the land thing, even if they had no experience of farm life, found that in general, people who came from families that were self-employed or small business people made a better stick at that more rural self-reliance because it involves taking responsibility for more things, dealing with ups and downs of, of cash flow, money now, not money later, rather than the drip feed of money into the bank from secure employment, that has obviously been a sort of a desirable thing in the modern world, but it means that people are actually incredibly vulnerable because they then spend up to that income or in fact go into massive debt. You know, supposedly all these systems are then continuing. And of course, it only takes a little disturbance that, that there's very little resilience. So the ways of following permaculture principles and developing that sort of lifestyle tends to build uh, resilience. And someone in a quite early commentary on my principles framework said, isn't resilience a 13th principle? And my answer to that was, after thinking about it quite a lot, is that I realised, even though I didn't articulate it in principles and pathways exactly, that all 12 culture design principles contribute to resilience because resilience is a, a core characteristic of systems that have the ability to persist. And so everything must be contributing to that resilience. And it's, to some extent, a trade-off against productivity and efficiency. It's like insurance systems, backup systems. Mm -hmm. They all cost. They've got a degree of inefficiency and the obsession with making things more efficient actually inevitably makes them less resilient. So the, when we do things in the ad hoc way as amateurs in the household economy, we are building resilience, even if not everything we're doing, we're exactly efficient at it. And Yasha Rowe from the Permaculture Academy in Germany said uh, on an advanced course I taught there, which was are pretty amazing for someone to say this in a second language that in permaculture we need to be Jack and Jill's of all trades but a master of one rather than a master of none. So it's important to have some skill or ability for which society recognises as having some particular competence that society is prepared to reward. But we also need to be able to dabble and do a little bit of everything. So as far as resilience in relationships, both 
family scale and village scale and cultural scale. How do we create resilience in that context? I get resilience in the household as far as growing your own vegetables and providing some of your own energy and et cetera. But what does it look like as far as navigating the wilderness of, of human relationships? Well, for a start, I would nest those human relationships of how we start to understand that actually in the household context. Because if a household is just one person, then it's not very productive and it's not very resilient. The only way to respond to that is to minimise what one is doing, sort of live more like a, a monk, absolute frugality, simplicity, you know, the, the one pot meal is the, the norm. So many things that if we are by ourselves, the, the adaptive strategy is to just simplify, just do less and less. It's through the capacity of larger households where we can actually do more. And through that it is intimate relationships, lived relationships, whether those are life partners, uh, children, people who are part of a household who borders in our house, but where we have some direct connection. So all of those issues of communication, reciprocity, conflict resolution, all of those things clearly apply. And we learnt most of our models for our human relations in a household, in a family, uh, good and bad, functional and dysfunctional. So modelling that level, I think, is incredibly important and is a sort of a stepping stone into, okay, how do we, what our building resilience through our relationships in neighbourhood and community. And a lot of those things, of course, can just start with a simple transference, you know, that in a household, if we've got a problem with someone, we generally talk to them about it rather than ringing up the local government or the police. Obviously, in extreme circumstances, uh, those things happen too. Whereas when we're in the community space, for so many people, Dealing with conflict, their first reaction is, okay, I, I ring up the police or I ring up the local council. So to actually bring the, that normal behaviour from the household, oh, no, I go and talk to them. And if I'm feeling good about someone in the neighbourhood or appreciative or whatever, the whole thing of you know, going and giving them some of your surplus or something you have or something you think they would appreciate, you know, normalising that non-mediated social interactions that don't go through social media or and are not regulated by monetary exchange where we've employed this person to do that or, or we have all of those rules of the marketplace. No, that we just make up the rules we, as we go along. Well, we see what the rules are. We, you know, that's how we learn as children in sort of navigating those spaces. So putting our toe further into the water of that space is incredibly important in building community resilience. And I think it's the weakest link in so many affluent societies like Australia and uh, the United States. When I was travelling and teaching in Mexico in 2007 
and in 2005 in Japan, you know, you take a hard-nosed sort of ecological big systems look at both those countries that have similar populations and their relationship to resources and land base. And you can see, God, there's huge challenges of how will people survive in the, in the future. But on the other hand, you know, both those societies in their different ways have enormous social and cultural resilience, which is lacking in countries like the United States and Australia. Mm -hmm. So you can see that that social resilience and some of that comes from dealing with stresses, dealing with the failure of governance structures at higher level and where people trust family and community relationships because the higher levels of societal organisation maybe have, have not been functional. So that problem of when all those functions move up to the larger scale and we let the local disappear, then we become more vulnerable, less resilient. So the rebuilding of those is just through, um, you know, normal, casual processes. And we can get so far, I think, because we've gone so low. <laughs> so... <laughs> But improve the, the room for improvement is enormous. Right. <laughs> you know, and we can see that in terms of potential productivity, whereas to say to uh, Bangladeshi farmers, you know, on a bit of saline affected delta, well, you need to double food production on this land somehow. Well, they're already pushing the boundaries. You can look at a Soweto taxi with 15 people in it it's hard to say, hey, you need to be more efficient, put 30 people in the Soweto taxi. Very difficult. But in countries like the United States and Australia, where there's one person in the car, well, we can quadruple the efficiency of fuel mm -hmm. use and social interaction by just four people get organising to get in the car together. So it, again, it's about kind of finding the appropriate and sort of optimised scale. So that relates to relationships as much as it relates to agriculture or, um, you know, business. So my last question in this sort of line of inquiry is, if you had a magic wand and you could fix anything in the world you wanted to, what would you do? That's a very dangerous <laughs> uh, question. Magic wands <laughs> tend to be result in um, unintended consequences. I often joke about uh, when I'm dictator in Australia, that I'll solve the water crisis in the country by just going through a series of radical land use changes that are all quite simple and technically possible, but I'm well aware the implementing of those things would create economic and political chaos and there'd be huge pushback from all sorts of forces, no matter how strong a dictator I, I, I was. And so I've never sort of operated in that realm of saying, I wish I had more power to do something. Uh, because I think the main problem I've experienced is how do we make use of the power we actually have effectively? And so magic wand, um, I suppose if you really want to go magic wand, then it would be to have what we know now and move back in time some period into the development of the industrialised exploitation of fossil fuels 
and say, let's have a second go at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great idea. See, (laughs) even though it was an uncomfortable question that you didn't like the idea of that, you got somewhere beautiful. That's, yeah. Someone should do a, create a movie about that. That's <laughs> yeah, so perhaps back to the time of Adam Smith and the first uh, super excitement about the emergent power from tapping uh, the ancient sunlight with the ramping up of improved technology of uh, uh, steam engines and um, that we could have, um, you know, maybe uh, taken a different path in, in what we did with that gift. <laughs> So, uh, well, excellent. Well, we've gone uh, way over time, and I appreciate your time today as we kind of wrap things up. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the the listeners? And also, uh, we'll put in the show notes your website and all of that. Is there any particular place you'd like for people to find you outside of the retrosuburbia.com website? I I suppose um, just uh, to, I think, to accept we do live in incredible times and, you know, that as all the spiritual traditions have said to live each day as though it's really important and to savour and appreciate everything that's around, even the things that annoy us, which, of course, so often in permaculture, the Molossonian aphorism that the, the problem is the solution, at least it gets us uh, thinking about things in a different way. So whatever the problem is, just um, try and think creatively at how to adapt and deal with those, those problems as they come up and certainly not turn the solutions back into the problem because we mm-hmm. see an awful lot of that happening in society where we, mm-hmm. we get towards solutions and then the habits from the past uh, turn those things into the problem again. So how do you keep from having the solutions turn into new problems? I think often sort of hubris that leads to this is the answer to everything turns solutions into problems. And when we do things in a modest way and do them where we get the negative feedback loops of whatever we've done and we get it cycling back to us immediately, we avoid that process. So it's the opposite of this tall smokestack syndrome. If we've got a wood heater and we're collecting water off the roof and we can taste um, a smoky touch in the water tank, then that's uh, a perfectly functional negative feedback loop that's telling us, oh, we're doing something wrong here or we need to take note. Bring the problems back home and that means as we search for solutions, consequences of those solutions too will come back to us, both the good and the, the bad. And that, that avoids us getting too far down a wrong road. Again, scale, keeping that scale in context so that... Yeah, you're... small and, and slow solutions, slow so... enough to, that the feedback, the negative feedback that's necessary in every system, because it's the break we need to stop us running off the road in the same way that we need the power principles of catch and store energy and obtain a yield, which is like the accelerator to put more fuel into the engine to go faster. You know, accepting feedback, constraining the system, being self-regulating, 
requires that negative feedback loop to be operating and not taking, as we say with the proverb, the sins of the fathers visited onto the children until the seventh generation, that it doesn't take seven generations for us to get the message. Well, thank you, David. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this time together. So tell us where uh, people can learn more about you and your work and uh, if they'd like to contact you, uh, how they can do that. Well, homegren.com.au is our primary website where my writings and a lot of resources are. And uh, we work in a, a small scale way here in central Victoria and very much focused locally, but our work is accessible through our partners, um, Permaculture Design Mag, and we're building uh, a pathway of uh, book and other material distribution that is not available on Amazon. That's one of the great things about retro suburbia. Good for you. <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> and we've been able to break out of that system and our partners at um, permacultureprinciples.com, which is, explores the the principles and is also a, a platform for my work and uh, related permaculture work that's accessible around the world. So we're contributing to that that wider, incredibly diverse permaculture networks. And I feel incredibly grateful and rewarded by all the people who have taken the original ideas and their ongoing evolution that came through my original work with Mollison out in so many different ways in the world. And I think linking it to so many other threads of positive action. I've always been a bit of a sceptic and critic of permaculture as a movement and in some ways an observer of it rather than an evangelist for it. But I keep finding that what people are doing with permaculture is one of the most positive and empowering things happening in the world. And that certainly keeps me fed and nourished. So I have huge appreciation for that, including the work uh, you and Scott Mann have done with the, uh, the Permaculture Podcast. So keep up the good work. Thank you. So, you know, I was thinking a little bit about how you talked about your childhood and sort of standing on the shoulders of your parents that enabled you to, to do what you've done with your, your life and work. And uh, I've heard you, I heard you talk on another podcast kind of about the evolution uh, of what, you know, maybe permaculture may evolve into in the next generation or two. Are there people in the world that you could uh, name that are sort of moving that forward, moving forward, the evolution of, of these whole systems, design, thinking, living systems uh, into the next iteration? Are there anybody well, in particular? We get a lot of um, sort of stimulation from lots of, you know, related fields that are not necessarily directly connected to permaculture. And, you know, so many thinkers uh, I've just been reading uh, a book by Jeremy Lent, The Patterning Instinct, The Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, which is, you know, in some ways quite challenging to um, some of my views, but incredibly informing. So I think there's many big picture views that are 
helping in that that sort of level. But I'm most inspired, I suppose, by the people who have taken inspiration and applied permaculture thinking in new ways. Obviously, uh, Rob Hopkins of what he did in starting the Transition Towns movement is uh, an incredibly important one. Another very close colleague, Dan Palmer, what he's done with the blog Making Permaculture Stronger, focusing on design process. I think his work is incredibly fundamental. And we've just completed a a four-day advanced permaculture design process workshop, the, the third that we've run over the last few years. And having that sort of working relationship with people who are accelerating or expanding and uh, developing and deepening the ideas, strengthening what's already been done, I think is incredibly important. I think people working in the novel ecosystems field are further exploring the incredible productive power of nature to generate new ecosystem responses to land degradation is an incredibly important both a counter story to the story of everything falling apart, which is the most the main evidence and news we have. But it's also an incredible source of, of design inspiration. So I think researchers working in that area is incredibly important. I think the explorations in new ways of economic organisation of what would economies, non-growth economies, look like, that there's now a huge number of people in that space. And, uh, you know, whereas a few decades ago, there was a few lone voices. So many, many different ideas and influences, I, I think. And what young people are doing in the reinvigoration of micro-farming, whether it's at the backyard scale or micro-dairies and young commercial farmers who are taking farming as a livelihood seriously. I'm incredibly inspired by those people. I've often said that I'm probably a better ecological builder than I am ecological farmer, but I know what the world needs more of. In affluent countries, we probably have enough buildings already but we need food every year. So, you know, people who do that for a living and that, that sense of uh, the energy to go out and uh, do that, I'm incredibly inspired by the huge numbers of, of young people who are getting stuck into it. <laughs> um, are, are there any particular thought leaders in the realm of uh, the explorations of new ways of economic organisation that you could recommend? Yeah, look, it's an area that I, I haven't explored greatly. I'm, I mean, I think there's Michelle Bowens and the peer-to-peer networks and uh, the thinking that comes out of that field, uh, the exploration of understandings of the commons and uh, a wider uh, thinking in that area. Uh, another close colleague who's working in that area, both at a conceptual level, but also practically with relationship to land is uh, Patrick Jones, 
who runs the blog uh, Permaculture Permapoesis and also Artist as Family in uh, what he and his partner do. And I think there's a lot of thinking in those areas, but um, I've been mostly focused on that. How do we do that at the smallest scale first? Because I, I remain sceptical of our ability to implement some of these larger scale things as the chaotic nature of society unfolds. It's a bit like the dealing with climate change, the idea that we could get some unity of societal understanding and direction around this has has largely failed. And I think we have to accept that that actually will be the the case. So we, we have to operate in a world where we can't necessarily sensibly sit down and say, okay, these are the the big ideas to be implemented. So it's what are the things that can be implemented at the the very smallest scales that I think have the the most potency. And in that sense, I sort of, yeah, remain a critic of some of those larger scale agendas. I think the community interaction with the local economies uh, that are being addressed within transition towns, such as local currencies and attempting to uh, put in place that scale of system is, is very, very important, rather than how do we reform and redesign the whole monetary system, because I don't believe there's any chance of doing that for various deep structural reasons. But there's still this tendency to always scale up the responses to, you know, how do we make the change at the, at the top? And I remain a friendly critic of people often working in that space. Well, thank you again. And uh, so the, the new book is Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. And uh, I'd just like to say I really appreciate what you've created with this book. It's well organized. It's graphically beautiful. And you've, uh, as I mentioned before, you've created a very rich resource with the companion website, retrosuburbia.com. So yeah, I suggest everyone to go check that out. There's great articles, case studies, videos, et cetera, there as well. So thanks for your time and your extra time. I think we've <laughs> we've gone over by double of what, uh, yes, <laughs> what I proposed to you. <laughs> but it's been, it's been fun. So I appreciate that very much, David. And uh, yeah, best of luck to you with that, all that you're doing. Thank you. And good luck with continuing the good work. And that was David Holmgren. You can find him, his work, and his books at holmgren.com.au and his latest, Retro Suburbia, at retrosuburbia.com. There you can also buy the book to have shipped wherever you live in the world. To go along with this conversation, I also have giveaways thanks to David and the folks at Holmgren Design, permacultureprinciples.com, and Permaculture Design Magazine. That's a copy of Retro Suburbia and copies of the 2020 Permaculture Calendar. I'll be giving the book and a calendar away to one listener and two more copies of the calendar to others. You'll find this giveaway at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast which runs through October 30th, 2019. If you'd like to make sure you get a copy of the calendar for yourself or to give to friends and family, you'll find those at permacultureprinciples.com. 
This year, the calendar features incredible images to illustrate the principles of permaculture, all with a thicker print stock and better print quality. You get all of that for just $11.95 US, with 100% of the sales profits going to the Perma Fund, a charitable organization supporting permaculture projects around the world. Also, I have a second copy of Retro Suburbia to give away. Send an email to show at permaculturepodcast.com with Retro Suburbia in the subject to enter. I'll randomly select the winner for this copy at the end of November, so make sure and send that email today. I spend a lot of time in self-reflection, journaling, meditating, and generally considering what I've learned, what I know, and how I can apply that to where I am. I find that self-assessment and awareness can lead to new insights and breakthroughs. These allow us to take our practices further. And so for that reason, at the end of the last episode, I asked you to consider a series of questions about the context of your current on-the-ground situation. From that space of the structures that surround us, I'd like to take this consideration, similar to the way that David Holmgren did in his answers today, and go a bit more personal. How can you use the influences of your past and what you've learned about permaculture to create and integrate new solutions into your life? What kind of novel personal social system can you create? What kind of synergies exist between what you already know and where you want to take your practice? Who inspires you that you could seek out to learn more? What related fields are pushing the edge of current knowledge that you could draw ideas of inspiration? How can you, with time, radically transform your use of permaculture into a more personal, embodied, everyday practice? If there is any way I can connect you with what you need to take your practice further, by interviewing someone in an upcoming episode, by connecting you with a particular resource, or by anything else that comes to mind, feel free to contact me. Together we can see where the conversation leads. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16 Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is a guest post, read by me, from Michael Commons. After that is an episode looking at the current state of the podcast and where, after nine years, I'd like to take things and how I'd like you to join me on that journey. Until then, spend each day retrofitting suburbia while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.